So, um, all right. Talk about teaching corporate newcomers coming into Apache how to behave properly with the Apache way as a rubric. Um, honestly, the, the problem with teaching corporate newcomers coming into any open source project, uh, certainly Apache is one of them, is don't be afraid to post. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an impossible task, really, because everyone is, a, is afraid a little bit to post their own ideas, are afraid to get criticized for what they emailed are really afraid that they'll post something that is, you know, either offensive or, or um, inappropriate or lose intellectual property or something like that. But, you know, it's very hard to do that if you're, unless you're trying to do that. Um, But the hardest problem we have is that the, uh, the barrier to contribution. So if, if we can reduce the barrier of contribution down, every time we reduce the barrier of to contributing down, it ends up helping us. And the hardest part on the uh, corporate side is, is that that's really the opposite of how corporations train their developers to work. The corporations typically train their developers to not post outside the lines, to stay within your project group, to always, you know, check things with the architect in charge or whatever before you agree to it, to do anything or continue to do anything. And it's, it's very hard for um, us as a group of individuals in an open source realm to tell a new individual who's coming in from the corporate side, it's like, yes, we'd love to hear you. What are your ideas? Please tell us now. And um, there's a great deal of fear associated with just sending the message, sending what you believe right now. Yeah, well, of course, one of the brilliant things about Apache is that your your recognized involvement, becoming a member or a committer even, is tied to you, not your employer. So I think that was a brilliant move because, I mean, I think it was done mostly because of um, acknowledgement that, you know, people change jobs but um, and you don't want to lose good contributors. But it's it's also very uh, effective at getting people eventually to understand that it's really not about their, that what they're being told to be afraid of, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it came from that, just the original nature of how we got together. I mean, uh, originally the, uh, Brian asked a few folks who was working on NCSA HPD, should we get together on a mailing list to talk about um, development and those folks went around, posted all the people or invited the people that they knew who were working on the server and might be interested in development. So we, we put together a group of 20 or so people just on on who we had heard of on the internet who had worked on NCSA HVD. And of those, I think eight of us got left, were left over after a month um, of contributing. So so the eight, eight of those 20 or so people we're able to work online together as a group with permission. Not we're not conflicted by employment or whatever. Um, and and all that you know that background led into this notion that we're an individual organization, an organization of individuals. So we're not representing any particular company um, because if if we had it, it wouldn't have made that big of a difference. Because at the beginning, we didn't have common employers. Uh, the closest we came was Brian and Cliff working together. Um, and and uh, for, the, for the podcast, Brian, Brian Bellender and Cliff Skolnick uh, founded Organic Computing. Uh, right. after I can't remember. I think it was after uh, the Apache group was going that they founded, co-founded it together. The, but not before the ASF was founded. It was before the ASF was founded, yeah. but bef- but after the the server project. That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, and um, and because of the, you know we we all approached as as individuals in, in many cases. You know, I I was working as a graduate student researcher at UC Irvine, which meant I was employed by UC Irvine, and I had permission to do things um, related to my research at UC Irvine. Now, a few years later, they tightened that up and said, well. Um, you should, you know, all your, all your IP belong to us basically with, uh, as with most, cor- 
most corporations. University of California has actually extensive patent holder. And um, I used my connections by that time to get out of that situation. Um, um, basically, uh, uh, more of a see no evil, hear no evil kind of getting out of it. But um, I was able to make that because it was the core of my research um, to, to be able to contribute as an individual. And the reason I bring that up is it's, it's, um, it is a combination of accident and intention that we end up being a, or an organization that is so focused on individual contribution. And part of that is, is that the notion that we want to support our, our own community members, particularly ourselves, to be able to continue to continue to contribute over time, regardless of who our employers are. Um, but it's also an awareness of if we emphasize the individual, the lawyers are going to have less pull on us from a corporate perspective. Um, basically, the, the fewer options you give the lawyers, the less opportunity they, they have to pick the ones that are best for the particular company they represent. represent. Um, and, which is, and it's not against lawyers. That's, that's, that's their job. Their job is to uh, maximize the intellectual property for um, the corporation that they represent. And in many cases, they do their job a little too well. Um, so uh, part of it was an awareness of that. And part of it was that, that, that desire for each of us to be able to conti continue contributing to this awesome global community that we love to be part of, uh, regardless of who's paying our checks. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I am, of course, borrowing shamelessly uh, from all of this to for the way that we're building um, Intersource Commons. And that emphasis on the individual, individual involvement is a really big deal for us. Um, and partly that was because I started it while I was at PayPal, but I knew I wasn't going to be at PayPal forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? and, and, but also I'd, I'd been a member for a long time at that point. Right. So, I mean, I, you guys made me a member in 2005. Which, yes. Um, thanks again. <laughs> it's been very, very good. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to thank us. It's thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, Sam Ruby keeps trying to get me to do something like when he was doing the legal team, legal uh, list, he was like, can you just start typing please? Cause he knew that, knew, <laughs> you know, but at the time I was working for a company that wasn't in a big hurry to see me do that. So right. maybe right. in my retirement, I'll finally have a more visible role. I don't know. I get in trouble every time I do that but anyway. Um, okay, so about the teaching corporate newcomers. So if we're successful with Intersource Commons in getting momentum that is, again, based on enlightened self-interest, corporations have screwed up their engineering through you know, lack of attention to detail. It's sort of like technical debt, but in the methodology space, <laughs> right? Um, yes. If we can modernize their methodology sufficiently and they start seeing benefit from it, then that should mean that teaching corporate newcomers becomes easier because the people that show up are already used to collaboration and they get why they need to speak up. And, and if they don't, you know, the, the, that's the grease that rolls, makes the wheels roll, basically. Yes. Yes. If, if you can get people over the emotional barrier to contributing that, that feeling that I shouldn't be able to speak for myself. Um, that's the first step. So, and, and that, that's, that applies internal to the organization as well. If, if you can get a junior developer to speak up to a senior staff, um, and contribute their own ideas, then you have a chance to actually make use of those ideas. If you don't, it doesn't matter how diverse your employment is and stuff like that. You're not going to produce diverse impacts if they don't, produce their own input. Right. And, and, um, I agree with you, of course. So that's part of why I'm on this mission, <laughs> which has been five years now. And I think it's probably another five before I can step away from it and have it still, you know, hold up. Right. Not right. That I'm all, not that I'm all that, um, superhuman, but a lot of the people that we've, in, we've involved are, are interested for the reasons they should be for self self uh, 
self-enlightened interests because they need to see change in the companies they work for. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, a good example you can use uh, from my perspective is, of course, I get, I know all the, the sausage making details within Adobe of, of how this works. But at Adobe, where I'm a senior principal scientist, um, we, the company that I was working for, Day Software, was acquired in 2010. And um, part of the reason we were acquired was because we had this expertise in the World Wide Web and open source. We had a um, content management system that uh, enterprises like to use for developing websites. Uh, we knew how to deal with the enterprise software sales space and also how to manage with a small engineering team. And Adobe was just at the um, point of about to stop shipping its boxed products and move instead to uh, online enterprise related model, uh, software as a services, platform as a services, and eventually what we have now, which is Adobe Creative Cloud and Document Cloud and Marketing Cloud, which are just the product terms for, yes, our stuff is online too. Um, and so in 2010, none of that was active and the company didn't have quite the, the experience and mentality of of stepping away from the product development space, which is really a three-year timeline of product releases and going to a more active development on servers. And one of the things we were asked to do is when we joined the company at Adobe was to help their engineering teams understand the concepts and development patterns of open source. One of the first questions I got was, was how was it possible for a team of nine to 15 people to take the Apache server and uh, effectively take over the uh, server market in the sense that everyone wanted to use our software instead of buying proprietary versions? And my, my answer was somewhat flippant for them, but it's uh, really, if, if you don't have to go attend any meetings, you can get an amazing amount of work done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear yeah. you. Um, because, you know, within within Adobe, you, there would be meetings for meetings for planning the next meeting on, on how they're going to coordinate the development effort of it. That time, I think we had 8,000 engineers. Um, and uh, trying to explain, like, no, we don't have meetings at all. We develop products. And we talk about them on email. Uh, we talk about new ideas. We go off and do our work. We push it into the stack of uh, either into the contribution chain within the mailing list to discuss or within the version control system nowadays. And, uh, and that wasn't too new to them. They were already using version control systems, um, particularly Perforce. But they had set it up so that... Um, every development group had its own uh, uh, identity management and um, uh, control. So by default, nobody could see each other's software, even within the company. Um, and prying that out of the control of individual product owners was so difficult. In fact, I don't, I don't think we still have managed to the point where we have our major projects products available as source code in central repositories. Um, I mean, they're, they are in repositories, but they're not in, in repositories that, that the rest of the organization can, can access. Right. Um, but, but we had been making progress. So we, we moved all of the enterprise so side of a business of the business towards using Git instead of using Perforce or some other content management system. And we all, we moved all of that into using a single identity management system for logging in. So we could all see each other's activity in the, the version control system. And then we moved to having common communication systems like Slack, where so the entire organization can have conversations, you know, divided up into channels and not have a big barrier to overhead to adding a new person to that channel, things like that. Slowly reducing the overhead of the way that people had managed the corporate hierarchy before so that the engineering hierarchy could move rather freely and discover new ideas and collaborate on on ideas without going through the corporate hierarchy to get permission to actually co collaborate. Um, 
And that was a huge deal. It made uh, a great difference to the way that Adobe thought about building software for its customers um, and the speed with which it thought it could produce releases. Because previous to that, they were used to that annual time schedule of doing point releases to the product. And it was clear to everyone that they had to go to something that was more like a six-week time frame for producing new releases. And how to get from one year to six weeks was the problem. They didn't know how. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and really... Uh, I can't even describe, I'm not going to take credit for doing that because, you know, it was a lot of uh, um, influence at the top end with my boss, uh, David Newsler, who's also an Apache member. Right. Um, and me being sort of the, the, the poster boy of, yes, you can do this. So I, I, you know, me being employed at Adobe told a lot of Adobe employees that it was okay to contribute to open source. You know, I thought that was funny to begin with, but it's actually true. Yeah, no, you know, I've, you I've can't, been a child before. I know <laughs> exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, it, if you can get over that, um, basically the, the, the emotional and, and corporate approval slide, uh, where you can say, "Hey, this is a this is a real person, and he hasn't been fired yet." Um, yeah, that that helps. And then, if you get it into the daily activity of all the working group of all the all of the uh, teams that are working together as teams, that they can add a new member of the team with with just a few clicks of the mouse. Um, it changes the way they think about what the company is doing. It changes the way that they think about how they can innovate within the company and where they're going to get more contributors. And they start looking for people who have expertise in a particular subject that they might need. It may be only for a couple of weeks, but they can go add them to the project and have them be useful to the project for those couple of weeks and not wait two months for their manager to approve. And of course we have to add into that, the, uh, basically uh, teaching the managers themselves to be a little a less territorial and more um, employee uh, growth oriented. So I, I'm very fortunate. Uh, Adobe is a very, very good company to work for in terms of its focus on engineering and its, its focus on, on employee growth over time that we're able to uh, do a lot of these things and have the company say, yeah, that's awesome. Just go ahead and do it. Um, so of course I, I hope that's true of other places, but uh, you know, well, we'll I'm, I'm betting that it will be, but it's a, but it's a, it's definitely a, a path. Right. So, yeah. so which takes us to the question, if the Apache way is so much better at that as a method to build software, why isn't everybody working this way? Um, well, there's a, there's a, a number of things I can think of. Um, the, uh, one of the things that makes it so much better <clears throat> is the, the notion of individual responsibility in the sense that, you know, you don't have someone telling you what to do. Um, you have to make your own decisions. You don't have any choice, but to make your own decisions. You know, you can't put it off on somebody else. Um, one of the things that corporations has a problem with is that they do have still managers. They still have tech leads. They still have architecture leads. And those people have to be part of the process as well. And as a result, um, a lot of the people contributing from the uh, corporate side are waiting for somebody else to make a decision for them. And that interferes with the ability of the patchy way of doing things to succeed. Because the reality is that no matter how smart your lead technical architect is, they are typically not geared toward, they don't know enough about your particular project to make the right decision every time. Um, generally speaking, if you can learn, um, if you knew everything that they would, they knew and you were embedded in the project and doing exactly what you, what you knew you wanted to do, you'd make the right decision. And most of the time you can make that decision anyways, even without their experience. <laughs> cool. So that's one reason. <laughs> yeah. Individual responsibility. So, individual responsibility and the individual recognition that you have to act. That you can't wait for someone else to do it for you. 
Um, another is when you're dealing with people who are employed by other companies, you can't use other mechanisms to arrange their um, opinion. You, so you can't tell their manager to tell them what to do, basically. So you have to convince them that you're right. If they disagree with you, you have to come up with a convincing reason for them that, that you are right. And the process of coming up with a convincing reason for them to do something vastly improves your own solution. It frequently, it abandons your own solution because you discover that, hey, actually, they were right. When you think about it deeply enough, you'll run into this problem that I hadn't thought of. And I'll just move along now and forget that. Um, as a result, you know, that kind of, of more in-depth thinking before you actually do something, uh, causing more reflection rather than, you know, immediately just going ahead and doing it and seeing if it works. You know, it produces better quality software. Now, there are some products that don't have that, some open source projects that don't have that at all. You know, people just produce whatever they want and it goes out. They don't have to collaborate much at all. And there are other project projects which are more mature or simply have more users or have more conflicting um, user bases where you have to do a lot of convincing in order to make any change. And you can see that in, in the quality of the, software that comes out. So that's, that's part of it as well. Um, ah, gosh. So we so see a fair amount of pushback from people who are not involved in making software managers, middle managers, just because yeah. they're, they're, first of all, they're jaded because corporate change initiatives come and go. Right. Um, right. And they're at the best, they're um, protecting the, employment of the people that work for them and from a necessary thrash. And at the worst, they're, you know, empire building and don't want anybody meddling in whatever it is they're doing. But um, we often have the most trouble with middle managers. Yes. Yes. And that's, you know, what can we say? That's true of everything. Um, in terms of on the corporate side, they have the same thing. The corporations rarely have trouble with the executive decision-making. They usually have trouble with the um, the middle management in changing the direction. Um, and I, I don't know if there's a good solution to that other than, um, having middle management that's focused not on project success, but rather on employee success. So in, in the sense that if you have your a middle management that consists almost entirely of people managers, as opposed to project managers, um, then the people managers will ensure that the employees folk continue to focus and get a focus on contributing towards that overall um, uh, corporate guidance. And but you still need project managers. Also, you you need people who are responsible for putting all the pieces together for the project and facilitating its development over time. Typically, if you can get facilitators in that role, that's that's your best option. Um, but they don't have to be the one managing the people. They don't have to be the ones making um, hire and fire decisions. They, they have to allocate the uh, resources in the company in order to get their projects done. They have to somehow do that. But they don't need to be the guardians of the of the methodology or the guardians of the um, even the architecture, what they need to do is is take care of the customers and ensure that that customer uh, need is fed back into the project requirements. And you know, it, it is one of those things where uh, I, I wish I could say I had the perfect answer to that, but I, I can only you know provide sort of an academic advice. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, we continue to work on it. You know, I think in companies where they are able to explain compellingly why the change is sought uh, and they take the time to give those, um, those people, you know, different avenues. Like I I've seen a lot of agile transformations now where they get rid of all the documentarians, right. Which I'm, yes. not, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but they do that. And then um, they assign 
that people were talking about to um, writing stories mm-hmm. or managing the people who are going to be replying to those stories and with code almost as um, you know resources, raw resources. And, yeah. and um, I don't know, it's, it's, it, what it does is it exposes pretty quickly that those, those folks in the project management role don't have much left to do now. And it's not like they're taught how to write stories well. So, you know, I mean, some of them come yes. to it, but most of them don't. And um, it, it takes a while for companies to recover from all of that. Right. And it, it yeah, it, it's one of those things where you have to find a management, the management has to find a solution that uh, fits in the way the corporation is organized and also realize that it's okay to change the way the corporation is organized if that's the way you're going to um, do better in the future. So just because you have this particular hierarchy of uh, developer and developer managers and product managers now doesn't mean that's necessarily the best way of doing it. You have to be able to willing to experiment and also to be flexible for certain teams of, of having, you know, just a, a different idea of how you're going to manage the open source development uh, or manage even a, a collaboration between the open developers and, and the closed developers on a certain particular project team. Yeah. I mean, when I worked at Apple, you know, we absolutely broke, broke the rules all the time because we were kind of a, kind of a pirate group, if you will. Um, but we didn't break the big ones that they actually care about you know, like revealing trade secrets and those kinds of things. We, we, we did, however, successfully negotiate a number of, um, of partnerships uh, on key projects because we were, again, in the research space, we were basically inventing new stuff. It was a labs project. This became FaceTime and also most of the patents that Lucent doesn't own behind streaming are Uh apples, right? We were writing them because, um, because that was the research we were doing. It was it was it was 1997 when I left there. So I'd, and I'd been there for since 94. So um, there was a whole lot of work happening in in video conferencing long before there was a net strong enough to actually hold, you know handle it. Because Apple was sitting on a subnet of the DARPA net, so they could they were pretending it, that it was the future. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, um, okay. Why is the why is the ESF been so successful? Um, ooh, that's a big question. Um, why the ASF has been so successful, I think, is it goes across a number of different forms. First of all, uh, we didn't make any drastic mistakes when we formed the the foundation. We we created a nonprofit foundation. It's very safe in the sense that it it doesn't look to be menacing to any of the the corporations that might want to participate. Um, there are a lot of different groups participating, so it doesn't look like it's dominated by any particular corporation, uh, at least on any particular week. Um, and we've, we've successfully carried ourselves as being independently minded and, uh, independently governed in the sense that we have a very strong board of directors who, uh, maintain that uh, level playing field and uh, vendor neutrality within all of our projects and maintains it fairly consistently over time. So even though it's, it's been quite a long time now, 20 years, uh, we, we still have a pretty consistent focus within the projects that if they go it too far in the direction of favoring a single vendor, we, the board of directors will step in and restructure the project. Um, and the, the projects are expected to actively maintain and actively produce um, a project governance which allows new contributors to come in and provides the same level play, playing field, the same vendor neutrality as, as we exist for the rest of the ASF um, so that it's very clear to at least one person in every project that if, if a vendor is being a particular vendor is being um, favored over another. The board will hear about it very quickly. 
um, which is good because it allows us to preserve that notion of, of the, the ASF is a, an organization that's been developed to collaboratively develop software with uh, participants from all over the world working at various companies. And um, each of those individuals can then be given permission to, um, to contribute the way that they feel, feel is best for the, or for the project as a whole, rather than focusing only on the interests of their own corporate employer. Cool. Yeah, that was all, that was, a, that was, that was a very academic way to say, because dinosaurs can all drink at the same watering hole. <laughs> yes. I, you know, <laughs> ultimately I always fall back on that academic discussion. My dad's a professor, uh, retired and um, I did my PhD at a time when everyone I knew was getting rich off of the internet. And I stayed on and, and held on and finished my dissertation in 2000, just before the stock market imploded. And, uh, you know, so I never had that temptation to become a venture capitalist or anything like that. I'm still the academic at heart. Yeah. Well, and Brian is just wired this this way, right? Brian is... Brian is, yes. Brian is just wired as a community resource. That's that's his sweet spot. He's not happy if that's not wh- where he's at. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, what would make it even more successful? Uh, what would make the Apache Software Foundation more successful is um, <coughs> let's see. This is. This is the longest conversation I've had in like three years. I'm so sorry, Roy. <laughs> hmm. It's okay. Um, that's one of the problems. I work remotely normally. And uh, so all this notion of remote work is perfectly normal for me, except when everyone else goes nor- remote. And then all of a sudden people want to work with me as opposed to listening me alone. But yeah. anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, so what would make the ASF better? Uh, no, even by more far. So- you know, by far the, the most the thing that would make the ASF better is a broadening of its um, contribution base so that P- the contributors that are involved, the volunteers are involved are you know, not just from specific locations within the world, uh, but from all over the world, you know people who come from different backgrounds and different uh, philosophies of life, different religions, if you want to say that, though we never really talk about religion. Um, if we can get more people to comfortably communicate online in English, it has to be English because all the English speakers are unwilling to con- you know, contribute under any, any other language. Um, if they're able to contribute um, confidently online, that would make the ASF a better place. And at the same time, as I say that the, getting everyone who's currently in the ASF more comfortable with receiving comments from anyone, whether they're whatever language that they come in on or whatever the uh, attitude of the participants to be able to respectfully talk to someone who's totally clueless about the subject, you know, even though they're wasting your time, they're, you know, they they haven't done their research they're you know, whatever it is, whatever it is that makes them clueless about the subject to be able to respectfully interact with that person and answer their problem or, or at least direct them somewhere else um, would make the ASF a much better place. Because right now, uh, Apache is still dominated by folks who are more like me in the sense that um, we have very strong opinions and we know how to speak them. We know how to write them very well. And we write long diatribes about, you know, what, how the nature of the universe is. And, um, you know, and sometimes we add a little bit too much of our own emo- emotions in them. Sometimes we don't add enough. Um, and because of that, it's not always welcoming to folks who don't know us already. So it's not always welcoming to new people or uh, people who are just trying to get a project started or people who just want the lowest overhead possible. 
Um, even though we have to explain them that, yes, we live in a world where lawyers exist and we need to protect ourselves against frivolous lawsuits. Um, the fact that they don't understand that is not really a flaw on their part. It's just they haven't experienced it yet. And it's much like in the world of GitHub, everyone can say, well, you know, GitHub is that valuable resource. It's an incredible resource of, of being able to start up a project and get many people involved. And there's no overhead at all. They don't even have to sign CLAs. And, you know, all this, you just can't take contributions. You accept it. Nobody's suing anyone, right? And uh, people don't understand that eventually somebody is going to sue over that. Eventually, somebody's going to take one of those projects online and completely destroy a developer's life not because of anything that developer earned or or because of irresponsibility on their part, but because there exist complete assholes in the universe of the, the uh, uh, business world who will do that regardless of the nature of the essence of open source. And so organizations like the ASF exist so that people who want to collaborate together as individuals on towards the common good, whatever that common good might be, can do so without putting all of their family finances and, and uh, personal finances on the line um, and to the first jackass who comes along who wants to um, sue their pants off, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, you know, I love GitHub and I think it's, it's a great resource. We use it internally within Adobe, in fact, as, as a, as a platform, both in our open source and our internal corporate side. And, uh, but it doesn't provide the legal protection of that an employer has. And if you don't have that legal protection, um, some people will take advantage of it eventually. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it will happen eventually. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to watch, since you know now that Microsoft owns them, they're they're an inherent deep pocket too, right? So, right, and I think you know Microsoft is at an interesting stage of its life. It's it's sort of that late middle age of 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 being fabulously wealthy and and looking out at the universe and saying we can be the good for everyone else. And I think GitHub is is safe from that perspective. They, they will continue to be that happy, beautiful place um, for a long time to come because simply because the management at, at Microsoft is headed in that direction um, and have no fear of, of losing money right now. Yeah, it's so much nicer than the old rapacious Microsoft, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Now if we could, uh, just, now if we could just twist Oracle's tail into line. Jesus. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. There's always that. Where just somebody has to be there, I guess. Yeah. Somebody has to be the the negative example. Otherwise, you know, eventually we would run out of negative examples. Okay. So you're running for the first for the board again for the first time in a long time, and I'm wondering what you think about how important it is to have old timers um, keeping a hand in in places like Apache. And I'm wondering this kind of for the intersource commons. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a mixed. I have mixed feelings about it because, on the one hand, for a long time now, for ever since we started the foundation, I've been trying to step away from the role of being the old timer. <clears throat> and the reason I've been, I I can't really step away from being an old timer, but I can step away from actually contributing, so that the new timers can feel more ownership of the process and also to ensure that the, the foundation can exist without me. Um, because, you know, there, there is always that concern that, you know, if, if one of the founders gets hit by a bus, what's going to happen in the organization? Well, we pretty much demonstrated that if all of the founders are not working on Apache, that the organization still continues on. And we did manage to do that for about a year or so with nobody at the wheel who was an original founder and um, which is fine. And now, but now we're running to that sort of uh, late middle age. Uh, I don't know. How do you describe it? Um, midlife crisis of um, 
an organization which uh, you know is is doing perfectly well, but wants to make changes. And you know how how can they make those changes when there's so much tradition behind not changing at all? And as the author of so many of the Apache traditions, I can go in and say, "Hey, I just made that crap up." So, um, so I, I can go in and actually say, you know, this was a good idea at the time, but it wasn't actually all that great an idea. Or maybe it was necessary then, but it's not always. It's not necessarily true now. And I can say that because I'm at both ends of that spectrum. I can say that because I was the one who came up with the 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 original problem or or came up with the original solution. Um, so that's the value of having an old timer involved, and they can they can tell you not so much how it should be based on the past, but what parts of the past no longer apply, or at least shouldn't be the ultimate decision making. Cool. And, yeah, and last it, question, what's your advice for the InterSource Commons community about our goal of transforming the tech industry as, as you understand what we're trying to do? Well, my advice uh, more than anything else would be to find the folks who, who are doing it uh, in the sense that uh, there are a lot of corporations like Adobe did, I guess it's been 10 years now, but, uh, you know, that... Uh, want to move in, a, in the direction of having more open source development in an inside internally. Um, but they just don't know how to make that next step. It, even if it's something as simple as collecting all of the most modern tools for continuous integration up and down the chain so that you can have one place to look for, for, this is how you install X. This is how you install Y. This is why you want to do X. This is why you want to do Y. Here's the alternatives. You know, this is how you get started. Here's an example tutorial. Um, even something as simple as that is would be super powerful for folks who are given the task of making things inner source without actually having done it ever before. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned CICD because that is clearly the gateway drug to intersource in most of these companies because everybody's having to implement it now. Everybody gets in that one instance why it's a bad idea to have each group have their own way of doing it, right? Yes. And one of my colleagues, former colleagues, because he's just left um, near, at Nearform, he said that in his experience, if you can get a common deployment behavior roughed out and agreed to, and leave the integration part up to the individual teams with some sample code that they can riff on. You have a better chance of getting there the fastest and kind of the, with the least, you know, collisions and pain, which I thought was sort of an interesting insight, you know? Yeah. But everybody gets it that they, that they need to, there needs to be some standardization and code reuse most importantly. And if they don't have a culture of doing that already, then it's the perfect time to, you know, push forward intersource as the way that that's going to get written. And mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's the, there, the other aspects are that it's, it is, it's a, it's something that has to be fairly centralized. And it, it's also something that has to, that requires a great deal of, of common assets. So you actually, you need a corporate structure, in the sense to buy into providing continuous integration in a way that you don't need it for the other tools. Yeah, that's true too. So, um, so anyway, it's been, it's been interesting to me to see how those two concepts are sort of tied together in much more than say getting to agile and in intersource. Yes. Intersource plays nicely with agile as long as, as long as you're not doing the stupid co-location thing, which I hopefully now in the face of COVID, nobody's trying to do anymore, but you right. know, I get why they, why they recommended it. Cause if you were, you know, trying to be a startup, startup like, then that proximity is helpful. But if you're trying to collect the collective wisdom about that code base, you know, passively, then the only way you can do it is through the mentorship of the trusted committer and, and capturing that, that virtuous circle. Right. But which Apache stumbled on with mailman. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. right? But but I think I'm actually worried about open source in, in the large because of the desire. There's a hegemony of tools now again to to communicate and there's no aggregation points. There's no discoverability between like all those Slack conversations. It's possible to archive them, but how do you make them discoverable? You know, right. It's it's so anyway. I I've been trying to yeah. convince GitHub that this is a problem that they need to work on. It's a it's a missing piece of the open source effect that has slowly eroded as new kids show up and want to make different tooling choices, not understanding yeah. why Mailman, although it's the stupidest mail server in the world, is key to how Apache works, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Because you know all those if you look back at those early pages, papers that I wrote, um, that was one of the keys. So you need the common shared information space that you have in a version management system, but you have to have, absolutely have to have control over a common communication mechanism. And Slack is a horrible mechanism for, for doing it. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's easiest for enterprises to buy, really, that you can buy into Slack, but it's horrible, absolutely horrible for bringing new people in and having them understand the project. Right. Well, so we did a little bit of work at PayPal on um, what if we, what if we sucked all the goodness out of the Slack channels and the, um, the various other mechanisms that weren't the code management tool, right? And uh, and we created a data lake that and you know put something on it like Elasticsearch so that it was discoverable. Would would that make it kind of like what you get in Apache when somebody gives you a thread that? you have to read before you say anything else, <laughs> you know, somebody comes up yeah. with a, with a burning idea and somebody goes, help, could you read this thread please before you start commenting? <laughs> it's, it's hard because one of the things that email provides is, is a forcing function for people like me to take a long time thinking about a response. And so you'll, you'll see that my responses at Apache tend to be longer and more thought out than other people. It's because I only said one a day. I only send one message a day, really. And it's it takes me a long time to develop. I put a lot of thought into it, um, try to make it as responsible as I can. Uh, and I only do that via email. It's the same exact person. If, I, if I'm talking on, on Slack, I'll just send random thoughts out on Slack and probably cause <laughs> no end of harm because people are treating them as, as if I've thought through them as carefully as I do with email. And... Unfortunately, I'm I'm I don't know how to convince people to to use email. I know uh, Amazon has the six pager concept, where instead of having a meeting, you or at the beginning of a meeting, you read someone's six page development of the reason to have the meeting in the first part. Um, and that's a similar concept. I mean, if you've put the effort in to fully describe your thoughts, your own thoughts via email, it turns out that that's a lot. Use, more useful for new people coming in to be able to read in an archive. Whereas I go, I can search Slack. I can look through a million Slack messages. I will never find anything of value in there because there's just simply too much random noise mixed in with the well thought out quibs. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a hard problem, but I've been trying, I've been, you know, I'm, I might be going about it the wrong way, but I've been trying to debate this with Nat because I feel like we have common ground. We've been around, you know, the same amount of time and, and he's well aware of that effect. But of course I'm coming from the Apache side and he did mostly, mostly free software projects, which didn't necessarily have the same emphasis on it. Didn't, if it didn't happen on the mail list, it never happened. You know, that whole thing. Right. Uh, They rarely communicate at all. It's, it's very, very rarely is it more than a one person team. And if there's more than one person, it's usually the same location. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, it's um, right. I mean, I, part of me wants me to say GitHub, you have to have mailing lists now. But on the other hand, um, our our Git project, our GitHub projects, do almost all of their conversations via the Git um, the the tracking system. Right. And the GitHub the GitHub interface itself, and that doesn't have anything to do with Git, but GitHub is actually produced a, a good enough qualitative enough um, issue tracking system that you can have conversations in it and be able to track those very well. 
The problem is they don't have an easy mechanism to initiate new ideas other than as a new issue. And uh, I, you know, I, I don't really know, have an answer for that. I know there's something missing out there. Yeah. And more than anything else, what, what, what I know is missing for a fact is they do not provide an easy way to archive the conversations and the yeah. issues and everything. Index them in such a way that a reasonable person could read them and make sense of them, which means yeah. you're going to integrate, let's say that, let's say for the sake of argument, GitHub and Slack are going to integrate, which I actually think would be not a bad thing. For, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. right. However that happens, it would not be a bad thing if you, the data that you could pull out of GitHub included the appropriate Slack conversations that were, you know, managed and timestamped in such a way that the meta tags would make sense. Oh, right. we're talking about this project because it happened on this channel kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So that you could really get an aggregate. Now in, um, you know, PayPal also had Confluence going, they had Jira going, they had, they had rally for their story management. They had, they had lots, they had mm -hmm. way too many tools is what they had. But, um, they were pandering to existing patterns and beliefs about how things had to be worked. Right. Yes. Yeah. Same thing at Adobe. We had 50 different tools and they've all slowly, slowly gone out. You know, you shut them down over time as we've convinced people to move more to a common infrastructure that just happens to be the same infrastructure that open source developers use. And the reason we can do that is the once people get involved in open source projects, they see why these other structures exist. They understand why they exist and they see, wow, you know, I could actually have that conversation with our team in India and not lose the context. Mm -hmm. You know, you do the same people can do it in open source but they can't do it on our internal tools. Why is that? Well, it's because the internal tool history has got this long history that didn't really take into account. It's like, okay, just delete the internal tools. We'll switch to the new platform. Ah, uh, that's and yeah, that'll be fun when we get there. <laughs> yeah, it happens. It, you know, good. It all depends on on how, how much buy-in you get and uh, how how really afraid the company is of losing the future. Well, I think that's a good place for us to stop, if you're agreed. 